So we're um, second into our sermon series, Cries from the Cross, as we journey to Easter together in this Lent period. And uh, today we're talking about the promise of paradise. Specific verse is Luke 23, verse 43. Do have out your Bibles if you can. But before we uh, dig into that, I want to see how good you are at naming famous TV faces. Um, so this is a mini quiz. We'll get it done really quickly, but I'm intrigued to see if you can guess who these faces are. These are faces you will have seen on TV. You can either give their character or their name, because uh, I don't know all their names. Um, uh, but over, there's a bit of a mix. It's a very random, eclectic mix. But let's go for it. Who's this? Anton Deck. Why are you? That was easy. There you go. Okay. Who? This. Greg Wallace, very good, those who knew that. Master Chef Judge, there he is. Oi, oi, lovely, lovely Cockney boy, there he is, Greg Wallace. Who's next? Oh, who is that? It, it, it is, it's Bouquet, actually, not Bucket. Um, that is Hyacinth Bouquet from back in the day, whenever she was on. I remember it as a kid, I thought she was hilarious. Um, okay, who's next? Ooh. Rixie. Nigella. Nigella Lawson. There she is. Famous cook. And who's this? It's Harold Bishop from Neighbours back in the day. There he is. Some friendly faces from the past. So there's all sorts, I mean that is, I don't think you'll ever get a PowerPoint slide with that particular bunch of people on ever again in your life, so enjoy it while it's up there. Um, it's amazing how many famous TV faces there are actually out there, I could have chosen from any number. How many we recognise, and we recognise them because we love entertainment, but actually it's not just the enjoyment of it. More often than not, we love to switch on the television pick up a novel, switch on the radio, turn on the computer or a device to escape, actually. Perhaps we're tired, or anxious, or stressed, or fed up, and so often we just want to escape from the stresses of the world for a moment. It's called escapism. It's actually a coping strategy, and it's not always a bad one. Sometimes we all need a bit of rest and downtime and a chance to unwind and de-stress. The definition of escapism is seeking distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. I wonder if you recognise this behaviour in yourself. As we turn again to the cross this week, you may wonder why I've started by talking about escapism. Truth is, We recognised last week together, didn't we, that the cross is not always an easy thing. We encountered last week the excruciating violence of the cross, how it highlighted the problem that is deep within us as humanity, something we're seeing in Ukraine in the most painful way, but also highlighted the excruciating forgiveness that Jesus offers, even as he suffers. Father, forgive them. 
We were challenged to let the Spirit speak to our hearts about our own hatred and lack of forgiveness, the call to take up our own cross and follow the way of Jesus. It wasn't an easy sermon, actually, to preach, um, but it's one I felt important to preach. But this morning, we turn from the pain to something truly beautiful. Today, we turn to the second cry from the cross. And in so doing, we actually discover the promise of paradise. In the midst of the most appalling pain and violence and suffering, a thief on a cross next to Jesus asks a question which opens up a glimpse of the beauty of heaven. And it may seem in a dark situation like this, What's happening on the cross? Isn't that just a form of escapism? With the world as dark as it is right now, isn't preaching on the beauty of heaven, Matt, just a bit of escapism? I want to say no. Because I truly believe that the unexpected beauty of looking at heaven this morning is not a mere mental distraction into fantasy, But it's a soul-strengthening exploration of a central truth discovered as we come to the cross. It's not escaping from reality, but opening our eyes to the deepest reality of all. You see, we have an enemy that wants nothing more than for God's people to feel disenfranchised and fearful and overwhelmed with the pain of all that's happening, to have our eyes down. Rather than lead us to seek escapism, when we look to the cross and then we look to heaven, we realise that we are strengthened and encouraged in the most extraordinary way. The Bible says, instead of what the enemy wants for us to keep our eyes down and look to the darkness only, it says, no, dwell on the reality of light. Since then you've been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, 1. You see, it doesn't disengage us from this life. Looking to heaven actually transforms our earthly thinking. It emboldens our faith. It strengthens our perseverance. It actually helps us to engage passionately with the challenges of our lives and the world today from the true, eternal perspective. So let's recap the situation for a moment. Our text tells us, having been brutally beaten, Jesus was led out of the city of Jerusalem to be crucified on a cross between two other criminals, one on his left and one on his right. Give us the details. And at this point, as he suffers in agony, struggling to breathe, Crowds are mocking. Soldiers are mocking. And now one of the criminals next to him begins to mock as well. It says he hurls insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one? Save yourself and us. It's at this moment that Luke's account tells us that the other criminal can bear it no more. He rebukes him. Don't you fear God? We were punished justly. We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And in a surprising moment of humility and faith, amidst the pain, the mocking, the despair, he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus then answers with one of the most beautiful sentences ever spoken. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a sentence. This morning we're going to keep it really simple. We're just going to break this sentence up into three simple truths I believe we should all take from it this morning. The first part of it, this first truth, is this word today. And actually, to understand the significance of this word, friends, we first need to understand what the Bible consistently teaches about our future destiny, about God's plans for eternity. You see, we might just assume it teaches a very simple truth that, well, we go to heaven when we die. You'll have heard, I I taught something of the simplicity of that in our all-age talk. It's true, but let's not rush there yet. Because it's actually not the full truth. It's not the full story. It's not even the main truth that the Bible teaches on our future destiny. You see, the glorious emphasis in Scripture is that one day, the Lord will act in the most extraordinary way to bring about justice, peace, to bring about his kingdom rule and reign here on earth. And we will all be part of it. In the Old Testament, it's called the Day of the Lord. If you've ever come across that, as you're reading through perhaps the uh, prophets, you come across the Day of the Lord. And actually, it's a pretty frightening thing to read sometimes. It's described as a great and terrible day for all the proud, the haughty, the arrogant, the violent, the oppressors. On that day, they will be brought low as God finally puts an end to evil. He breaks every chain and declares his mighty and perfect judgment. Many will wail as the mighty hand of God finally acts to bring an end to the reign of the wicked, to defeat the enemy once and for all. But as for the humble, the Bible says they'll be lifted up. As for the hungry, they'll be fed. As for the weak, they will be strengthened as God renews all things in heaven and on earth and a new eternal life of peace And joy begins in a renewed creation. War will be no more. Suffering no more. Death no more. Isaiah 65 says, you may recognise some of these um, words. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Here's a famous picture. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. It's an extraordinary Old Testament vision of the coming day of God's kingdom rule finally being known to all of creation. Thank you so much, Bex. We appreciate that. Marvellous. And it's actually a day that the New Testament teaches us all of creation is waiting for. This great and mighty, wonderful day. It's a created order. It's not going to be destroyed by God, but renewed and released from the curse of sin. The biblical teaching is that our physical bodies will also be renewed to enjoy eternity in this new creation. In fact, the New Testament writers utterly rejoice in this truth, celebrating and recognising that Jesus' Resurrection was actually the great defining moment where for the first time in the whole of human history, a human was raised to a new resurrection body ready 
for that great day. It says that one day all who believe in Jesus will rise from the dead and be given a new resurrection body just like his. And in his new creation, in his kingdom, we will live with him forever. You see, the Christian message has never historically been that this earth and this creation don't matter. It's a mistake when we think that. It matters so much to God. It's his. He declares it beautiful. And it doesn't actually simply teach us that when we die, we get to escape from all eternity, for all eternity, from the earth, like being in a lifeboat, and then watch the earth sink like a ship to the bottom of the sea, whilst we go, well, hey, we're all right. doesn't teach that at all. It's always been that one day, on that great day, Jesus will return to earth and bring about the fullness of his kingdom. The great plan for all of his beautiful creation will be fulfilled. Justice and peace will reign. Those who have died in faith will be raised to new resurrection life. And those who have not yet died will also be equally changed. You can hear Handel's Messiah in the moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. This was the great centre of all of Jesus' teaching. I remember when I first became a Christian, I read... Jesus teaching, and I was like, he keeps going on about this thing, the kingdom. What is the kingdom? What's he talking about? Repent, he says. Turn around your life, for the kingdom of heaven has now come near. What's he saying? I thought the gospel was something different, but this is what Jesus teaches about the kingdom. This is why the Christian creeds do not say we believe we will die and go to heaven. They say that we believe that one day Jesus will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life and the world to come. What an amazing future we have, friends. What an amazing plan of total restoration God has. Now I don't know how much the thief on that cross understood about all of this, about the wonders of God's plans for the world. I don't know how much he realised that Jesus was right at the centre of it all, but he knew enough. He recognised that Jesus was, in fact, a great king. Maybe, in fact, the great king he recognised. Who would one day come into his kingdom. And he simply asked that on that day, whenever it might come, that Jesus would remember him and think kindly of him on that great resurrection day. And yet here in Jesus' response, he hears something far more amazing. Not just on that day, but today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus says. Do you hear how surprising that actually is? Today. It's hard to realise just how much more than he was expecting the thief receives here. But here Jesus teaches us something amazing, that the moment we die, We do not simply disappear into a darkness or unconsciousness until that great resurrection day, but rather in that very moment we go to be with Jesus in paradise. And this paradise where Jesus is now is actually what we call heaven. It's where God is right now. It's a place, the Bible tells us, where the throne of God is, where the angels dwell in the heavenly realms. It is a reality just as real, if not more real, than the one we know here. It is the place that Elijah and Moses dwell, along with all the redeemed. The place that Jacob saw in his vision of angels ascending and descending that great ladder. It's the place Isaiah saw in his great vision and was terrified, thinking, I should never have seen this. 
is the place that Paul was caught up in. The John encounters in Revelation. It's a place that Ezekiel tries to explain with imagery beyond our imagination, our comprehension, and he simply concludes when he sees the throne of God in heaven, when I saw it, I just fell face down. It's too glorious. It's too wonderful. It is a place of utter peace, of utter beauty, of joy unspeakable that's filled with the awesome, majestic and unquenchably glorious presence of God. And it's where we go to dwell from the very moment that we die. A place the Apostle Paul could hardly wait to be. And yet, friends, we must not forget it's not our final resting place. For both the Old and New Testaments teach us that our final eternal place will be in our resurrection bodies, in the renewed earth that is yet to come. However, that is for one day, the day of Jesus' return. Yet for the thief, the promise of paradise was for today. So hear this, friends. Heaven is a paradise beyond our imagination. And those who trust Jesus will go there the very moment we die. The second part of the sentence reminds us why that is true. Why you and I can believe this. It's because Jesus has declared it so. Jesus has declared it's true. You see, the sentence starts with the Hebrew word, Amen. The NIV translates it, Truly I tell you. The King James says, Verily I say unto thee. It's that bit where Jesus puts in front of a sentence to say, What I'm about to say, listen carefully. Hold on to every word I'm about to utter because they're so important and they are unswervingly true. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, you will be with me, Jesus says. It could not be a more emphatic sentence if he tried. He's leaving no wriggle room, no sliver of doubt. Ooh, ooh, could it be? Should it be? Could it be? Truly, you will. And even though on the cross he hangs now suffering, even though he's struggling to breathe, even though he is mocked and shamed and humiliated, Jesus is sovereign. These are the words spoken with the authority of a king. From the very beginning, the people were amazed at Jesus because he taught with an authority unlike the rulers of the day. He had authority then. He has authority now. He always will do. His word always is true and always comes to pass. And his words, friends, not mine, not our theory, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. I simply want to say, do not get to the end of your journey in this life, friends, umming or ahhing or vaguely guessing or thinly hoping. If you do not know where you're going when you die, then don't miss these words today. Don't miss this opportunity today to humble your heart and to actually turn to Jesus. Do not think you're going to be able to blag it on the other side. Do not hope for the best that you've been a good enough person and cross your fingers and touch wood. No, none of us have been. Before God, not one of us can stand on our own merits. None of us. There is only one way to know your final and eternal destiny is secure. And that is through Jesus Christ. Do not need to wonder if in Jesus, we can have utter confidence because he's Lord of all. He died and suffered to take away the stain that could never be cleaned by us. He 
He rose again to show that death has been defeated only by him. He is the forerunner, the first fruit, who guarantees our future. He's the king of kings, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he declares that we can fully trust in him. For those that are wondering, could this promise really include me, Matt? Not a very good person. I'm an okay-ish person. Or maybe I think I'm worse than that. Maybe I've done some pretty awful things. Or maybe I think I'm a Christian, but... Well, I am a Christian, but I still feel rubbish. I'm not a super prayer. I forget to read my Bible as often as I should. Sometimes I mess up, I get cross, I lie, I fail, I hurt people. I want to say to everyone here today, tuned in and here in person, yes, Jesus is speaking to you today. Don't imagine for a moment that thief was expecting to receive the promise and the response that he did from Jesus. He only asked to be remembered favorably one day, in that day. And instead, Jesus says to him, no, there's a place for you in my plans today. There's a place for you today in paradise. You see, God's plans are cosmic in scale. Extraordinarily bigger than just me and you. Far bigger than we could ever imagine. And yet, they are also beautifully personal. It's extraordinary. His plans personally include me and you. Not just as a smudge of faces of a rough church that's his bride, but every single one of you that knows him and loves him, wants to love him more and put your trust in him. You're included. There's a place in my father's house for you, Jesus said to his worried disciples. And it's the same for each one listening here and online this morning. If you're not perfect, you're not religious it's alright look to Jesus because if you trust him then there is a place for you he knows all your fears he knows your worries and anxieties your doubts, your struggles he knows your quirks, your character traits your passions and he has a place for you in paradise just as the thief declared who Jesus was and the faith he had He spoke out with his mouth. The Bible says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Not wishful thinking, friends. This is the great grace of our God and the great truth of the gospel declared utterly and unswervingly true by the King of all kings. Now I'm going to finish up quicker now than I plan because I want us to move to worship. But I do want to finish with this thought. And if this sentence is teaching us that we can trust that there is a place for us, I want to tell you that that place for you is in paradise. And it's a Persian word for garden, this word paradise that Jesus uses. It's used throughout Scripture in the Old Testament for all sorts of gardens, but most notably for the Garden of Eden. Think for a moment, will you, with me, of the most beautiful garden you've ever been in, a place with the wonder of wildness and yet nurtured and shaped to bring even more beauty. Think of the waters, the trees, the flowers, the unusual plants, the scent of the blossom, the sound of the birds in the trees, the warmth of the sun on your face, the coolness of the breeze. Eden was a place of exquisite beauty. 
that brings alive something in us all and yet the most beautiful thing of all right there in the heart of Eden was that Adam and Eve got to walk side by side with their creator, with God. It's the most beautiful part of the whole garden was friendship and relationship with God. Paradise, Jesus promises, is a place more beautiful than we could know. No more tears, no more suffering, where only love is spoken. But most of all, it's a place where our relationship with God is finally restored. Not a far off land where we get sent on our own. Jesus says, no, you'll be with me. You'll be with me. I'll be there right by you in paradise. It is an utter joy for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus in this life. Do all you can to pursue it. Pursue Jesus with all you have. But know that Paul even said even the best of our efforts to know him, like looking through a glass darkly or like a reflection, but one day we will know as we are known. Jesus will be with us in paradise. So don't lose heart. Don't think this is escapism. God's plans are for his kingdom rule to come, for his whole creation to be redeemed. But until that day, we're called to be inspired by this kingdom to come and to passionately be committed to seeing it, breaking into this world now. The peace, the joy, the healing, the love, the justice of this kingdom to come and invade heaven, invading earth. But don't doubt, friends, for a moment that if your trust is in Jesus, then when the day comes, as it will do, and you face your final breath, Jesus will be with you, and you will enter paradise with him. Very truly, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. I can invite up the band for a moment. Now we're going to respond together for the last part of our service. We're going to respond in worship. Worship is a sign, a prophetic sign of the reality of heaven, the place where the angels worship the Lord. It is a bit like heaven breaking into earth. Now, if you don't like singing, don't worry. It's not about whether you sing or not. It's about how we turn our hearts to him, how we worship him, how we love and honour Jesus. You might want to speak that out as you worship. If you can't sing or don't like singing, just turn your prayers and hearts towards him. But before we do, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Because for some of you here, you may not know the assurance I'm talking about. Some of you here may not yet know Jesus. You may not have given your life to him. And it's not just about a simple prayer. Discovering Jesus is a life journey of discovery, of reading his word, of being filled with his spirit, of walking with brothers and sisters and discovering what life in all its fullness can really be like, even in the struggle and the pain. But it so often needs to begin with a moment of surrender and a moment of giving Jesus your yes. I can't make anyone a Christian. God does that. I don't know if anyone's ready to become a Christian here this morning or online tuning in. God knows and you know right now. And if you want to actually take that step and say, Lord Jesus, I want that assurance. 
I want you to be my Lord. I want to surrender to you now. And let's do that together now in this moment. And for everyone else, maybe you are a Christian, maybe you just need that reassurance again, or maybe you're just in a good place, let's still pray this prayer together. So I'm going to pray, and then just in the quietness of your heart, just repeat what I've said back to the Lord. Make this prayer your own. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you suffered and died there for me. In my place. Thank you that you love me more than I'll ever know. Thank you for your plans for this world and all creation. Thank you for your plans for me. Lord, I recognise I've got so much wrong in my own life. Lord, I'm sorry for my mistakes and my distance from you. Please forgive me now and fill me with the presence of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus, you are Lord of all. I love you and I trust you. We say that together as I pray that. Say it after me. For Jesus, you are Lord of all. Jesus, you are Lord of all. I love you and I trust you. I love you and I trust you. And I long to live for you. And I long to live for you until the day I go to be with you in paradise. Until the day I go to be with you in paradise. Amen. Amen. So let's stand and respond in worship together for this last section of our service. I invite you to realise that we get caught up with the angel's song of heaven, foretaste of heaven breaking into earth as we worship Jesus.